listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. In this episode of Dairy Voice, I'm delighted to say we'll be speaking with Wisconsin dairy producer Lloyd Holterman of Rosie Lane Holsteins near Watertown. I'm your host, Joel Hastings. Lloyd, welcome to Dairy Voice. Thank you, Joel. Happy to be here. I've always enjoyed our conversations over the years. Uh, I find that you often have a little bit different take on things, and you're usually ready to share what's on your mind. So I'm looking forward to this conversation today. We are going to talk about your role as uh, chairman of the Producer Advisory Committee for the CDCB, the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding. But before we go there, let's, let's start a little bit about, tell us a little bit about your, your dairy and your farming operations. At Rosie Lane Holsteins here in Watertown, Wisconsin, we milk 955 cows through the milking parlor three times a day. We have focused on cheese yield cow with very high components and for fat and protein. Our milk, uh, along with 90% of the milk in Wisconsin, is made into cheese. So that's really important so that everything we do is to uh, try to make more money making cheese milk. The cropping operations, 1,800 acres. We also do some custom farming. And Daphne and I always also have a management service where we're managing about uh, 2,500 acres for, for other farmers. We manage their leases on their land, uh, either retired or farmers from other countries that own land here in the United States. So it keeps you out of trouble mostly, huh? Mostly. It keeps Daphne out of trouble and me thinking how to get more into <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, now, Daphne, of course, is your wife, and then you have a couple of other partners in the farming operations, too. Right. Tim Strobel's been a partner since 1999. He uh, started working for us in high school. He runs all the cropping, environmental compliance, building projects, fix-it projects, uh, those kind of things. He has a staff of four full-time Jordan Matthews uh, became a partner in 2014. He's the youngest of the partners. He uh, manages the herd and doing most of the things I used to do. He does the hiring and firing and and all the management uh, and puts the management team together uh, for the dairy herd. Then I manage a genetic program and overall finance. Daphne manages the social media accounting and uh, she manages the farmsteads uh, trying to have a really a presentable image. You're pretty active in reaching out both in your local community and uh, you've also spoken not only across the U.S. but uh, around the world too. Just mention a little bit about your philosophy about why you invest that kind of time and energy reaching out beyond the farm. Well, I think it's really uh, great. It gives us the opportunity to uh, meet farmers from different, not only different states and provinces in Canada, but all over the world. And it's really amazing that we all want to do the same thing. We all might have different circumstances, but we're trying to do better with our cows in every way possible to generate better returns, to get better at every, at every aspect of, of dairy farming so that we can produce worldwide really high, high nutrition, high products that are high in nutrition and in quality. And uh, so actually we've, we've benefited more than we've actually given, in my opinion. You've got a wonderful reputation. And I guess uh, one more evidence of that is that you were just recognized at Rosie Lane with one of three national sustainability awards from the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy. How, how did that come about? And, and uh, what does that mean to you? Well, I think we caught some people's attention. Our bottom line focus here is on producing 1.7 pounds of energy corrected milk for every one pound of dry matter that our milking herd consumes. And on a thousand cow herd, we have accomplished that 12 months in a row. 
in a calendar year only one time, but that is our goal. We're always close. A month, there are different months we do achieve it, getting better all the time. The reason we focus on that number, you have to do everything correctly. If you're dropping the ball in any area, be it employees, protocols, uh, housing, water quality, feed quality, biosecurity, if you fail, or genetic and genetics, most importantly, genetics. If you fail in any one of those areas, you're not going to achieve the 1.7. And herd health has been an amazing contributor to that. Uh, I can tell you that as our vet costs have gone down over the last 15 years, our feed efficiency and our profitability has gone up. Going down this road of what I call a more sustainable cow, more disease resistance, higher fertility, less lameness, a more moderate sized cow to improve mobility, cows that gain weight easily and have body condition and calve on their own. Those kind of cows right now are really, really still profitable. Uh, even under the last conditions over the last four years, we, in fact, in 2018, we had our second best year in our history. It was because the cows were uh, generating very, very, a lot of milk with very few inputs as far as veterinary and, and maximizing the feed efficiency is all about healthy cows. Lloyd, we're going to want to circle back to uh, how you breed those healthy cows and what sort of genetics you're looking for. But the one statistic that jumps out not only at me, but I think at a lot of people is that you've, you've used no antibiotics on your milking herd for seven years. That's a pretty remarkable record. Just talk about that a bit. I think we really started um, when we expanded in 1999. Uh, our cheese plant at the time had a really high, a really good milk quality program where we were testing tanks weekly, especially through the expansion for mycoplasma. And since they're testing for mycoplasma, they're also testing for Staph aureus, Strep Ag, all the different mastitises, and uh, there's a bunch of new ones now. But that gave us the chance at first to keep mycoplasma out. We did have some sneak in here, but we. We were able to stamp it out because of regular testing and then gave us the opportunity to stamp out Staph aureus, which was huge because uh, since 2001, our tanks have been negative mycoplasma, negative Staph aureus. That gives us the opportunity. So when we're having some, everybody has a few mastitis issues and summertime when it's hot and humid, it can get worse. And we came to the conclusion in about 2012 or 13 that what we were doing wasn't working. We're, we're giving antibiotics to cows that were getting clinicals or uh, coliform uh, mastitis mostly. We had very poor cure rates. And so we went to Pamela Rugg at UW-Madison. Can you help us? Absolutely. She looked at what we're doing and she said, well, Klebsiella and E. coli don't respond well to antibiotics. You should use fluid therapy. So instead of antibiotics. Well, I, uh, we, I think uh, I was skeptical but we decided to give it a try. And lo and behold, we got more more cows to cure themselves. Um, as she told us they would, a lot of cows, you know, they'll get just like us. A lot of us get the common cold and we'll shut it off and we don't need to take antibiotics or, or anything else. Uh, and these cows are very resilient too uh, and can shut off a bunch of things. So then we decided, well, okay, we're not going to use antibiotics anytime during the lactation. That has pay, paid off big. We still use dry treat at the end of lactation. However, when the cow is lactating during that time, every cow is going through the parlor. Every cow is being milked. Do we have some clinical cases of mastitis? Yes, we still do. But as we've bred these cows now for mastitis resistance the last couple of years through Dairy Wellness Profit, 
And because we are breeding indirectly for net merit since 1994, we are indirectly breeding for healthier, more disease-resistant cows. Let's let's stay on your on your breeding program. Obviously, taking into account the health traits, but but talk a little bit about your your current uh, criteria for for the bulls that you use. Uh, what you consider to be a successful cow. Just let's just talk about the cows and your and your genetics. A herd of successful cows for us. The definition is real simple. We have a, a herdsman that that does the breeding and all the herd health. And a lot of the calvings, his name is Julio. I want Julio sitting in the office with his feet on the desk with nothing to do. That by and that's by ten o'clock in the morning. That to me, that is the kind of cows we have to have. And so, what do cows have to do to achieve our goal uh, of Julio having a good life? Cows that calve on their own. Cows that resist lameness. And that really is different than foot and leg composite. The mastitis resistance, probably a high correlation of somatic cell count, but not perfect. So I would rather have mastitis resistance than low cell count. So we're picking for that. Uh, we want these cows to produce milk that's 4.2% fat, 3.5% protein. On the protein side, we're not there yet, but our cows are producing 4.2% fat. We like a little more moderate-sized cow. We found that they hold up longer over the long term, but we need strength and width and balanced cows so that because they're on concrete all the time when they come in heat, we don't like it when they get injured, things like that. A little different criteria. I'm not breeding and have not bred since 1994. We have not looked at predicted difference type or foot and leg composite is a primary criteria. Yes, we want good udders but I would rather have mastitis resistance than other shape. Probably the bull that revolutionized our herd and made the most improvement over the years. We had over 750 daughters of Oman. We were waiting for the next Oman to show up. Uh, that bull revolutionized our herd, 3% calving ease, double B kappa casing, so it improved the cheese yield. High components, uh, cows that lasted forever, not fancy, but rugged, shorter, wider cows, good teat length and placement. And so that bull really revolutionized their herd. Not everybody loves the bull, but uh, for the commercial dairyman in the United States, it was certainly better for us than uh, crossbreeding. So your mature cow, second, maybe third lactation, how tall is she? That, uh, what's, your, what's your desired height? And, and, and how tall is she and how much does she weigh uh, after she's been uh, bred back? 50, 56, 57 inches. Uh, cows, when they're fourth and fifth and sixth calf, they'll weigh uh, 1,700 pounds, depending on stage of lactation, 16 to 1,700. Our young cows, since we calve at 22 months, they're pretty small, but they really grow into it. I, sh I should make a comment that our highest producing cows, and we track this all the time, in actual production, because we have daily milk weights and the AFI will divide it out by lactation for actual milk. Our highest lactation cows are fourth calf. We need third, fourth, and fifth calf cows. We have to keep first and second calf cows to a minimum, regardless of what we think our genetic progress is, because we cannot cash flow with having all young cows. It'd be like the NFL team that decides, well, every year I'm going to trade away all my good players, all my mature players, and I'm just going to rely on the draft. Yeah, you'd have kind of an exciting team, but lots of mistakes and lots of bad guesses, never allowing these cows or players, in the case of the NFL, to develop their full potential. 
I, that's about as good of an analogy as I can make. So since we're letting these cows mature, putting an emphasis on keeping these cows around as long as they're healthy and productive and profitable, we keep them around and, and uh, we're making a lot more money with that model than we did before. It also has allowed us to raise only about seven heifers for every 10 cows because everybody knows raising heifers is uh, for the last five years has been a dead end game not very profitable. And we still have too many call rate uh, with death loss. We'd like to see that number less than 25% for sure. We have been achieving that. Uh, gives us lots of options on which cows to keep. In other words, we can get rid of a cow if she kicks too much in the parlor. We can get rid of a cow if she milks too slow. Because we have a low call rate, we're not having to keep those cows around and really do, that really screws up your labor efficiency when you have cows that aren't very workable. And it makes your uh, your staff's lives a little more difficult too. I expect. We always we always tell the guys, and we're serious about this. You take really good care of the really good cows, and we will take care of not putting the cows in front of you that you hate. You know the kickers, uh, the cows that take fifteen minutes uh, three times a day uh, for milking for unit on time. Those kind of cows really hurt labor efficiency. We promise to keep those cows out of your way if you promise to take really good care of the good ones. And so far, it's really worked out great with that strategy. And uh, both sides have to, everybody has to do what they're supposed to do. It's hard for me to get rid of a cow because I'm not doing it. But if I make a culling decision, it's hard for me to get rid of a cow that's milking over 100 pounds. But she takes 10 minutes of unit on time. That's units hanging on her 30 minutes a day. We could have milked uh, two different cows rather than her. (laughs) And so that's that's we sort our cows by milking speed because of the labor efficiency issue we have groups of cows uh, three different milking speeds that we look at uh the extremely slows and then the five to seven minute cows and then the, the under five minute cows uh, and we can group those cows together and that really makes that parlor about about 25 percent more efficient that's a remarkable statistic talking about breeding and genetics uh and your relatively lower number of heifers, are you using sex semen? And, and are you, have you found any reason to use beef bulls? Uh, we're actually having an awful lot of beef bulls. Uh, about 60% of the services in a week are t- to an Angus or a Wagyu bull. Yes, we are using sex semen, especially on our, our heifers. Our higher genetic ones uh, will try to get pregnant to uh, sex semen to get heifers out of those. Uh, we also use conventional semen because uh, two things, uh, sex semen has come a long way with the uh, conception rate. However, I still have more confidence, a little bit more on that last service to get that cow pregnant. Uh, we use conventional semen. And then cows that are kind of in the middle, of, in the upper, say, uh, not good enough to use sex semen on, not high enough to use sex semen on, but you still want, there's a broad range of those cows that we are using conventional semen on. The problem with uh, Angus bulls, uh, they have the best recognition in Wisconsin. They bring the most at the sale barns. However, uh, Angus bulls do not seem to have as good a conception as a Holstein bull. And so we're using Holstein on that last service, trying to keep the cow in the herd. Have you gotten into selecting any of these beef bulls for particular traits, or are you shopping more on price? Calving ease and fertility. Those are the only two traits. So uh, conception rate on the, on the sire, SCR, yep. and then the calving ease. Um, the reason we're not, we are not a big enough herd 
at around a thousand cows. We're not a big enough herd to link up to a, a feedlot. Yep. And um, we we absolutely would do that. So our calves all go to a sale barn twice a week where the buyers really don't know what they are. So you want them to be black as possible so they look like they're, so they can tell there's Angus in them. And uh, that's the predominant, most popular beef breed in Wisconsin uh, to get a high value calf. And of course, we don't have the facilities to raise them ourselves, or some of these other breeds may be more interesting. Do you, uh, what, does, does genomic testing fit in your program? Are you doing some or all of your animals? We do all the heifers. Uh, we have not uh, done all the heifers consistently over the years, but in the last two years, we've been doing all of the heifers so that uh, we can pick some that are going to be recips. If there's an extremely low animal and we have too many heifers in that age group, she will get called. Uh, we try to not do that because it's so expensive with that strategy. Uh, they aren't worth very much when you ship them in and you have a lot of resources used up, especially if they get into that fourth month where our calf program costs about $5 a calf a day uh, to that first 60 days. So you've got $300 in them and then you go cull them and they bring about $100. So it's, that really doesn't work out very well. So we try to keep that to a minimum. We use parent average at calving. We do create more Holstein heifer calves than we're going to raise as long as they're born alive and, and we get good conception rates on the Holstein bulls. We can really raise the ones we need and get rid of the low parent average ones before we genomic test them. And you mentioned that you're uh, producing uh, cheese milk and uh, tell us about where you ship your milk and uh, we can't have a conversation today about that without at least acknowledging the pressure some dairymen are under to reduce production but what's your situation? Well, our, our dairy plant has been excellent. Um, they asked us to cut back 5% on, on the volume. So we can ship Jersey milk uh, right up to that volume level. Uh, they've pinpointed about um, 86,500 pounds a day is what we're supposed to produce. But if it's 5% fat and 4% protein, that's all the better. They they just don't want the volume through the plant. And that's fit right into our breeding program Program because over the years, Net Merit's had a slight negative weighting on pounds of milk, but very high weightings on pounds of fat and pounds of protein. So we kind of joke with our Jersey friends that we're breeding a black and white Jersey with twice the yield. So we, we want a high cheese yield milk, you know, the volume because of trucking costs and, and, and things like that. We don't necessarily, we aren't necessarily trying to have the cow's milk 110 pounds unless it's really, really high component milk. And you are this. We are talking about your, your your herd is a Holstein herd. Yes, it's a Holstein herd. Um, we averaged a, a little over a three two protein this last year. We thought that was pretty good. Um, uh, four two fat, energy corrected. We're always in the high nineties, low. Uh, we'll get to one hundred two pounds once in a while, but our energy corrected milk, we like to see that 103, 104, 105 pounds. For, and we track that every month through the Cornell Pro Dairy Program, how much energy corrected milk, what our income over feed cost is, what our feed efficiency is, income over feed cost, income over per purchase feed cost, which is really important right now. So lots of different ways to measure these things, but the centerpiece is always the genetics. 
because you invest that once and it will move itself forward into the next generation. So if you make a good decision now, you're going to benefit that for at least two generations somewhat. If you make a poor decision now, you're going to pay for it for two generations unless you call that an animal and she doesn't ever have a baby. Your comment on genetics, let's let's focus on that for a minute. From this uh, latest sire run where we had the base change, uh, what what is your typical bull or what is your best bull choice? What what are the characteristics, what are the criteria for the for the service sires that you're working on right now? Well, we like to see uh, the net merit under the new system, they need to be uh, in the high 700s or over 800. Within that, we're, we're, we want higher protein. We'll give up a little bit of fat at this point to get a higher protein. So that ratio can be a little bit less, but we like to see still see 45 protein and 60 of fat. Then um, we want mastitis resistance. I like to see bulls at 105 on the Dairy Wellness Profit. Calf pneumonia resistance, I like to see that, 105 to 108, somewhere in there. We like, we'll like. we choose a bull if everything else is equal. We like to get double B on kappa casein. For sure, we're trying to stay away from the E because we're trying to make cheese milk, and the E gene on the kappa casein is uh, detrimental to cheese yield in the milk, so we try to stay away from those. Calving ease, historically, we've always tried to pick bulls seven and under. The new scale that's showed up this time, uh, I would say that a nine is what a six used to be. We, you know, you have to, we try to choose bulls with calving ability. Uh, the daughters have calving ability and they themselves will sire a moderate sized calf. One of our successes actually is we're only running a 2% DOA rate. We only assist one out of 52 calvings. The calves are born alive. That reduces your labor, it reduces your sick cows, metritis, and retained placentas, and that, so you're reducing your ketosis, you're reducing your DAs. We have really good numbers on that, and that's where the profitability and labor efficiency shows up in these cows. You can breed a lot better cow. I mean, that's that's the lesson that we've learned. Uh, it does actually work. It takes a few generations, and you have to have some patience, and you can't dwell on your mistakes, but move forward with your with your successes. With those kind of calving statistics, you're going to make your Jersey neighbors jealous. Well, you know, I mean, I, we, we like Jersey cows, uh, actually really admire them. But we think, you know, we think we can achieve more with a Holstein cow because of the labor efficiency. Every time a Holstein comes in to the milking parlor, they're going to give more pounds of fat and protein on that one milking than a Jersey will give. And uh, they still haven't proven to me that the feed efficiency of a Jersey is, is higher than, than a Holstein. I know they talk about research, but I've never seen it. I, I really believe in the Holstein cow. Uh, we did crossbreed for a while. The crossbreeding experiment was successful in my opinion, but when Old Man came along, it was unnecessary. We got we, we we were able to achieve a more profitable cow by staying straight Holstein because of because of that bull along with Ramos and uh, a few other bulls, uh, some Rudolph sons that we used. Uh, we were very successful in in raising the bar in our own Holstein population. That the crossbreds uh, they they competed well, but they they did not beat out the good Holsteins. We always say that a good hole if you have a Holstein that doesn't get sick. No other cow in the world can be as productive for milk production as a Holstein. The problem is getting these Holsteins not to get sick, to calve easier. Because of their frame size, we have to breed a cow that uh, that has better feet and legs, that resists lameness. 
So it, it's, a, it's a little bit of different target when you have a Holstein cow and what to improve. We're not going for the last pound of milk, fat, and protein on a bullproof. We want these cows, because of what I stated before, these cows produce the most in fourth lactation. So daughter pregnancy rate, you must use bulls that are positive on daughter pregnancy rate to get them the fifth and sixth calf. Uh, if you don't do that, you're going to ship open cows, and there's nothing more depressing in the world than to load up a cow on a trailer that is perfectly healthy, four-quartered, milks out fast, has high components, but you can't get her pregnant. To me, that's, that, that is, that is a, a fate that is really depressing. So we're doing everything we can to keep those cows in our system. So, so we're giving up some straight-out production to, achieve, to get these cows to later lactation because the way we look at bullproofs, they only use the information for the first 2.7 lactations. That's where most of the emphasis is on. Well, our cows haven't even gotten to maturity by then. So we're finding that our even our eighth calf cows, there aren't very many of them, but their average actual production is higher than our three-year-olds. So that's how critical this is. I mean, if you want to milk all two- and three-year-olds, you're never going to achieve the labor efficiency and high production, regardless of how high the bulls you used are. Even with uh, some first-round draft choices there, huh? No, no. There, there aren't, you know, there's, there's some first-round draft choices that are going to be competitive with the older cows, but very, very, it's, it's very few. Well, with this emphasis on breeding the right kind of cow for your operation and your commitment to it, uh, it's pretty easy to understand why you were, were invited to serve on the CDCB Dairy, Dairy Producer Advisory Council, the PAC, to use these initials. Uh, before you got that call, what was your impression uh, of, of the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding? Well, I only really residually knew what they did. I knew that there was a change where the Bull Studs and Breed Associations pretty much formed a new organization uh, because USDA wasn't going to fund our, our bullproof system anymore, and, and the industry felt it was necessary to stay with unbiased uh, and work together, um, which I, I think is appropriate, unbiased and working together to, to keep our costs down. And I knew they ran the, the calculations on the genomics. But other than that, I really didn't know a lot of what they did because we're actually dealing with, they're a step removed from the farm. Um, the nominators, the Zoetis is the Holstein Association, the Jersey Association, and, and different companies are selling the, the DNA test kits and we send it in. And, and so we really didn't have much relationship as individual farmers with CDCB. I think uh, they were concerned also that farmers didn't know much about them, and um, they wanted to make sure that the data that they're producing, like the net merit formula is one of their babies, which I've used from day one and very have a lot of confidence in. I think they, they wanted to make sure that they're on the right track and they wanted some farmer input yeah, it's great to put out all this data and information, but if the farmers don't understand it and use it, or the dairymen don't use it because they don't understand it, that's really not where we want to be either. How many of you are there on the committee, and kind of what is your committee assignment? What What are you being asked to do? Okay, so there's five of us. Um, we have one uh, individual that's a crossbreeder, and it, he has a very interesting uh, operation. And then there's uh, the other four of us have purebreds, uh, Holsteins. Uh, I think all of us have dabbled in other breeds, Jerseys and Swiss and, and things like that. They'll bring up issues in front of us like 
there was quite an outcry about the change on calving ease this last time. So they were just brought that in front of us. Well, what do you guys think? And so we gave our input. We did give our input on things like changes in the formulas that have to do with productive life or fat and protein pricing. I'm very impressed with their staff and the researchers that we have at USDA. They're doing an outstanding job. They're really, really smart people that are doing their their best. Um, we just have to keep it in the form that it gets used correctly out in the field. Uh, calving ease would be a good one. I never understood that there was a base to calving ease because I always thought it was a straight up percentage of difficult births. Well, uh, they've always had a base, but they haven't moved it all the time. And so um, that created some confusion where bulls that were fives and sixes went to eights and nines. And, and then people said, well, usually you draw the line. I know I talked earlier, we drew a line in the sand. We weren't going to use bulls that were above eight. Well, now it's hard to find a bull. That's, so you have to mentally make the adjustment, but people didn't understand what happened. They think the information's wrong. I have confidence that the information ranks the bulls correctly and that their data is good, clean data. I have no doubt about that, but it's still hard to look at these numbers and make a mental adjustment because I don't want 8% of my calvings to be difficult, and I know that's not our average anymore. So we give input like that, and then they come up with some solutions to try to make it better. Uh, they've uh, really taken us in and asked us about several different issues. And we have five different people that when we're all on the same page uh, about our opinion, that happens once in a while, not all the time, but I think it's uh, really positive. It, it reinforces the need for good, clean data and to make reading tools from this data. Well, Lloyd, we're kind of getting to the end of our time here. I can think of lots more to talk about. Maybe we can have you back again sometime on Dairy Voice and we can talk about some of these other topics too. Uh, but I really appreciate you taking some time to share your thinking with us. Well, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed talking about genetics and in, in our path. We took a different path that other most other producers did not take on the genetic side way back. And for us, it's it's uh, it's really paid off. So it's it's led to a more profitable cow in our situation. And I really enjoy sh- and sharing the numbers and the profitability of these cows with others. You've done a great job, and you're obviously well regarded, not only in the U.S. but around the world as well. And I hope we can have you back on Dairy Voice. We've been speaking with Lloyd Holterman, who's a partner in Rosie Lane Holsteins near Watertown, Wisconsin. This is Joel Hastings speaking for Dairy Voice on DairyBusiness.com.